You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Studio 89.7. This talk program focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. And now, here's your host, Philadelphia radio veteran, Paul Perello. Well, it's my pleasure to have with me here in the studio a brilliant actor. I'm not just saying that because he's sitting here uh, next to me, but I will admit, I have no qualms about this. When there was this little old show that was on CBS yeah. a number of years ago, <laughs> I was one of the few guys, perhaps, Robert, that I would be glued to the television set watching Guiding Light. And I only think it's because my mother watched Guiding Light, my wife watched Guiding Light, and uh, so I was pulled into the storyline. And lo and behold, uh, Robert Newman joins me uh, in the studio here. He played Joshua for 26 years? Twenty. I say it this way, 24 years over a 28-year period. Okay. I took two two-year breaks from that role. Well, who's counting? Uh, it was quite, quite, a, quite a role. Yes. Uh, you know. About 3,000 episodes. Really? Ish. Yeah. Yeah. So when when you first started on the show, were they still were they shooting in New York, or was everything in California? No, no, no. Getting Light's always been an East Coast show, and it shot in Chicago for a short time. Really? It started on the radio in 1937. And uh, went to television somewhere around the early 50s. For a period of time, they did both the radio and the television broadcast right. on the same day. So right. the, the, they would come and do, uh, do it on the radio right. live and then rush across town to another studio and do the exact same episode but do it live on television. Yeah. And then in somewhere in 54 or 5, it went you know, it went straight television, went off the air in 2009, which made it the longest running show in the history of broadcast at 72 years. And our final episode number was 15,762. I, I also teach a radio industry course ah. at the collegiate level. So we talk about those early soaps. And I sure. always bring up Guiding Light, that, uh, you know, the longest running you know soap opera uh, with all those episodes uh, starting at radio. and uh, Not just know. soap opera. It's the longest running show in the history of broadcast really yeah wow that's it's fantastic guinness book of world records yeah, or whatever yeah. yeah and so do you miss it i have to ask them before we start talking about Mata la mancha do you miss that because people think okay robert and kim they show up there's this chemistry on the screen and there's very little <laughs> very little work that goes into doing oh. a, a recurring role like that well, I like people think no that right? <laughs> they're way off well because you make it seem so easy so no. natural so organic I think soap operas are one of the most difficult things in the industry. I really do. Uh, in terms of platforms, if you think about film or telev- or nighttime television, I mean, I'll put it this way. This is a very simple way of thinking about it. Uh, we shot one episode a day, 70 pages of dialogue a day. Right. And we shot 250 episodes a year. Wow. Uh, by comparison, I've just done Chicago Fire, for right. instance. Chicago Fire shoots one episode in about eight to ten days and they're only shooting 22 shows episodes in the entire year so right. when you're talking about soap opera being something that's easy um it is not at all right. an easy medium to work in and um and i think and i personally feel that sometimes it doesn't get the credit for how difficult it is sure. um and i would shoot anywhere from 
20 to 30 pages of dialogue on my own uh, on a normal day. And sometimes that was five days a week and sometimes it was three days a week or whatever. It was however many times you were on, you know, episodes you were in. Um, We'd start the day around 7 a.m. with rehearsals and then we would the show would finish about 7 p.m. or so. So there's nothing easy about soap opera. Well, not that I uh, I think. But having said that, Kim and I developed such a great working relationship with each other that... um, and we trusted each other completely. And, and when you play the character as long as I have or she has, uh, the, the th- people often ask me, like, how do you memorize all the dialogue? Yeah. Well, that becomes simpler when you've been playing the character for 30 years or mm-hmm. 20 years. And, um, you know, there's not so much work done developing a character on a day-to-day basis like we do with something like La Mancha. Sure. Where you're spending several weeks just figuring out who these people are. We know who these people are. Yeah, yeah. And so does the audience, so. We're talking with uh, Robert Newman, who is in the Philadelphia area in a production of Man of La Mancha. I think I read somewhere that, and there's been this renewed interest. And it's hard for me to believe that in this day and age, you know, we we hear of the O.J. Simpson trial, and there's a whole generation of kids out there that are hearing about this trial mm-hmm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. But yet, I like you. We, I mean, we all lived it. We were glued to the television sets, and oftentimes. Shows like Guiding Light would get preempted on a regular basis. Yes. I think I read somewhere that you um, you feel that the I guess the demise or the downfall of the or the change in daytime television actually started with the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, I posted about this on Facebook, and it was because I was watching the the recent uh, uh, miniseries about right. the trial, and they actually had a scene in there, a uh, quick scene that happens in, a, in one of the networks right. where they're talking about. Oh, we have to start preempting the soaps because the other network is is getting a much bigger ad buy out of um, uh, showing OJ, and that's precisely what happened. And that was a time, um, if you think about it, in a couple of different ways. One is OJ was really the first reality show. Yeah that we ever experienced, where the audience was glued to the set watching something that was happening in real time, as opposed to what we were manufacturing in terms of drama. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the real life in that situation couldn't, you know, we couldn't hold a candle to sure. that. And But it was also at a time way before the internet where the only way that they could... Um, uh, rebroadcast what had been missed was by showing it at like two o'clock in the morning, and it was even a time when really, yes, we were we had VHS and that kind of thing, and people were beginning to understand how to, but we didn't have a DVR system where you right. could just push a button and the series gets recorded all the time. So people had to consciously, uh, you know, tape the show. It sometimes Guiding Light would be on at two a.m., sometimes it would be three a.m. There was so all the soaps. All of the ratings for all the soaps dropped dramatically that year, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure we ever recovered from it. It's not the reason soaps have have. It's not the reason for the demise of soap opera, but it to me it was sort of the beginning of the end. And then came more reality shows, and then more game shows, more talk shows, more everything. Mm-hmm. And then the economic uh, landscape has changed so dramatically that to you know we had twenty actors 25 actors under contract we had half a dozen directors we had 15 writers we had you know the if you compare that to a game show with one host a couple of people to turn the letters and you know they shoot the whole thing in a day you know it's it's just a it just doesn't work anymore it's a it's a there's still four so so they're all Mm -hmm. in la yeah um but it's a 
business model that doesn't really function well anymore. So when the decision comes down and the cast of Guiding Light finds out that uh-huh. CBS is pulling the plug, what's the reaction? Well, first of all, that happened on April Fool's Day. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh. In oh. T- 2000. Yeah, timing is everything, right? Yeah. yeah. So did you think it was a joke because it was April Fool's Day? Or no, was- I mean, I knew it was coming. Right. Uh, you know, I've, I've had great involvement in the, in the union, in, mm-hmm. in what was formerly AFTRA and now is SAG-AFTRA. Right. And so I, I had sort of, a, I've been a national board member and all kinds of things, a national vice president. So I had sort of more of an inside track to what was really happening. Um, I'll tell you this story. I'll try to do it quickly. On that day, um, a for me, it was a different experience for two reasons. One is I was doing an off-Broadway musical at the time, mm-hmm. um, and that actually overlapped with the actual end of the show. Mm-hmm. So the, the day that, the, when we shot our final episode, the next day I went to work, <laughs> you know, so I didn't have that feeling of unemployed, being unemployed the next day. But the, the, the other story for me was that a... Um, some close, my, my wife and I sing together quite a bit. And we sing at weddings, we've sung at funerals, we sing at all kinds of things, fundraisers. And um, a friend of ours, uh, their 26 year old son had been killed on the New Jersey Turnpike about a week earlier. And uh, they asked us to sing at the funeral. And I went to Guiding Light and I said, listen, I know I'm shooting on location in New Jersey that day. Is there any way I can shift around and do this? And they said, uh, we love you, but no which was a fair answer, mm-hmm. you know, um, but my wife sang. So that funeral started at noon. When I got to PPAC, uh, New Jersey, which is where we were shooting, at 10, they came up to me and said, we have some news for you. And I was like, okay. And they said, the show's canceled. And the executive producer and the representative from Procter & Gamble are going to come out to talk about it at, at, um, at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. So there we were at noon. They're telling us the show has been canceled. And I looked up at the clock and I thought about my wife singing at this funeral and a casket in a church and that, that young man's parents and his siblings sitting there. And I thought, this is just vocation. Mm-hmm. This is work. I can handle this. Mm-hmm. What they're going through right in this moment, I wouldn't be able to handle that yeah. at all. But this, and it was an extraordinary moment of perspective for me. And, and because of that, I, it was just... You know, at the end of the day, Guiding Light was a gig. Yeah. And when I was asked about it in another interview, 60 Minutes actually asked me about it, and I said, um, I signed a three-year contract 28 years ago. I, I can't really complain about yeah, right. that, you know. I wish all my gigs worked out like yeah. that, you know. So I do miss the show. Um, I miss the, but I mainly miss the relationships, but I stay in contact. In fact, Kim Zimmer came yeah. to see the show opening night here in, here in Bristol. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm with, in contact with Ron Range all the time. He's uh-huh. been, he's done Quixote a couple times right. and he's texting me constantly and <laughs> he's like my, uh, my dad or something. Right. He's like, make sure you're drinking lots of water yeah. and, you know, don't overdo this yeah. and don't talk before noon and, you know, <laughs> well, things. This role that you've taken on is, is a demanding role. I mean, when you talk about uh, Broadway productions or you talk about, you know, any type of, you know, theater, whether you're on Broadway or not, it's demanding because it's live. There may or may not be an understudy. And I'm guessing if people are coming out to the Bristol Riverside Theater, they want to see Robert Newman in the role of Don Quixote as opposed to his understudy. But, you know, it's not only the acting, but it's the singing and it's mm-hmm. and it's constant. And you're performing seven, seven shows a week. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's... And the two shows days are 
yesterday, Wednesday, we have we had a two show day, and yeah. Saturday we have a two show day, and that's really a trick. Yeah. yeah. So, and you've performed in other um, Broadway shows. I know you performed with Kim. Was it um, in Gypsy? Uh, Gypsy, and we did curtains together at yeah. Paper Mill. So, how demanding is this role then, this show, compared to some of the other stage work that you've done? I think. Well, Keith Baker and I were just talking about this uh, the other night about that this this may be for a man the most demanding role that in a musical that you can play. I mean, I, I've also done, believe it or not, I've done uh, played Tevia and Fiddler. Yeah. Uh, not too long ago, that was also an exhausting role but for sort of different reasons mm-hmm. Tevi is not as physical as this character sure, is and yeah. and uh, but it's a but it's a and it's also a longer play it's yeah. a three-hour journey that you take every night in Fiddler and by the end of it you're pretty much done and uh, but this one is there's just something that's um, physically and emotionally taxing uh, and vocally taxing about this role and and even the woman who plays um, Tamara Hayden, who plays Aldonza, she and I were talking about this the other night for her as well. It just you you, you sort of pay a price when you play this role, and, and it's a very worthwhile, mm-hmm. but it, it it takes its toll on on your body. Yeah, I, I'm I, I just driving here. I got out of the car and I said, and I sort of <laughs> pulled myself out of the car. And I don't know if you remember North Dallas Forty with Nick Nolte. Yeah. There's an opening scene where he's yeah. like cracking yeah. every bone in his body. <laughs> and, you know, that's how I feel in the morning yeah. when I get up. My yeah. voice doesn't function till about eleven or noon, and yeah. um. It, but it, it is one of the most rewarding uh, pieces of theater you can possibly do. It's just such a gorgeous story. And the audiences, they're laughing, they're crying, they're thinking, which I think is is very important to me. Even the musicals I do. Yeah. This is not a musical, you right. know, like, hey, you know, like, like uh, you know, Guys and Dolls or something. Right. It's not like, this is something that's really demanding a lot of the audience to, to participate in, sure. in a sense. And it's changing the way they're thinking about the world, you know. And that's part of what I love about what I do. So even the musicals I do, I'm seeking that kind of a piece. And and what's so poignant about this production of Man of La Mancha is that, you know, uh, even though it may have originally um, been out uh, like 50 years ago, it's it's a musical for our time, given it is. with many of the contemporary issues that we're right. faced with today. Uh, I think that's why it resonates so well with audiences, is that um, you are up there performing and 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 the audience is engaged in it because it is a story that I think everybody can sort of um, uh, latch on to. It's yeah. a story that we could all relate to on so many different levels. Well, Keith Baker, who's the director, of course, he, he really, he and I first talked, we first talked about it when I was here doing Gypsy a few years ago and um, had long conversations about this play. And then he called me a long time ago, about a year ago, about committing to this production of it. And... I remember it was so long ago that that uh, when my agent said, uh, "Yeah, it'll start. Uh, rehearsals will start in April of 2017." And I said, "No, you mean or 2016?" I said, "You mean 2015?" And they were like, "No, no, no, 2016." And I was like, "Well, I don't know what the hell I'm going to be doing exactly. in April of 20, right. but whatever, fine, you know." And then he and I spoke about six months ago at, at about an hour and a half on the phone, talking about uh, all 
different, particularly about his vision for this mm-hmm. play, which, and he's brought to the table a, a brokenness in these characters that are in this prison, um, labeling it as we do today as PTSD. Uh, back in that, in those days, you know, this is these are people who are surrounded by war. They've all been through war. They've all been affected by it because there's wars happening all around them. And then they're thrown into this horrible dungeon uh, to face the Inquisition, which was a whole nother thing, you know, that that the church brought down upon its people. Um, and so these these are people living in a constant state of terror mm-hmm. and brokenness and fear, and that even even. Cervantes, who's thrown into the prison, and his manservant, who's never really named, that, that, that the two of them have been through all of this, too. So all of this, this is not what, you know, what the play is about on the top level, but right. it's, it's foundational in everything we're doing in this production, everything. Mm-hmm. So that the, the singing of songs is sort of a different, it's not just me belting out. I, I sing... Uh, the impossible dream, for instance, completely differently when I'm doing it in a fundraiser or a concert format than I do on stage here in context as Quixote. Mm-hmm. It's a very different rendition of the song because you're bringing the entire meaning of the play to it as sure. opposed to it just being, wow, what a great song that mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra or whatever does, you know. It's a different way of, of approaching it, and and I I think it's bold, and I think it's daring greatly on Keith's part, and for all of us, and and he's gotten us all on board with it, and it's and I think it's stunning. I think it's striking. We're talking with uh, actor Robert Newman, who is performing in Man La Mancha at uh, the Bristol Riverside Theater, and uh, all of the reviews have been very positive. It's a it's a production that we have not seen here in the greater Philadelphia area in uh, in quite some time, and who better than Robert Newman to play uh, the, the lead you know, role? There's a hundred better. No, but go come ahead. on, come on. No, 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 no. Um, I see, I see. You do compliments well, just like me, right? Yeah. I'm glad that you're in this role. Thank you. And uh, look, I couldn't look. If it was the two of us... You are by far the better to be playing this role right now. Thank How's you. That? Okay. And All if right. it was the two of us, you are by far better at leading this interview and doing your thing on the radio than yeah, I, I could ever try. Be. You know, not bad for a kid from <laughs> South Philly, as I say. Well, just be as honest with her as you are with everyone else, and I'm sure it'll all work out. I don't believe it. Charles, ah, you're here! Hi. 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 The guy at the hotel desk told me I'd find you here. Oh, are you? I can't, I can't believe you're here. I, have you been to Spalding yet? Uh, hold on, hold on. One question at a time, okay? Oh. I just got into town, and uh, no, I haven't been to Spalding. Oh. I wanted to see you first. Because uh, from what I've been hearing, once I walk into that rat's nest, all I'm going to hear is a lot of talk about how Alan is wanted for murder and how he ran away. Well, it has to be true, Trish. Uh, even the papers are saying that he must be planning on hiding out for a long time if he took his wife and baby with him. I'm really sorry. I had no idea you were Hope Spalding's father. No. And Trish can tell you, I have this, this incredible knack of always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to exactly the wrong person. I'm not saying a word. <laughs> Can't tell you how it feels to be. Oh, and it's great to have you. Hey, listen, you, if you've got some free time, I uh, could use your help around here. Hey, I'd be happy to. But uh, I have a feeling I'm going to have my hands full just playing middleman between Dad and Spalding Enterprises. Josh, if Daddy didn't think you could do a terrific job, he never would have sent you here. Or he and Billy just wanted to get rid of me. There's always that. 
Or did you just forget about them? Now that you are here in Springfield, you can be your own man, and you don't have to worry about what they think. <laughs> yeah, it's a habit I've had for so long, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get rid of it. But uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Good. In the meantime, I better get to work. <laughs> That's my guest Robert Newman in his first appearance on Guiding Light on CBS television. We're talking with uh, actor Robert Newman. One of the other things that you mentioned, uh, Chicago Fire. So does this fit into like sort of the middle of your production schedule? Will you go back? Is there oh, any cur- I don't want to overemphasize Chicago Fire. Chicago Fire called me. I was actually doing a play in Albany in February, okay. January and February, a world premiere of a new play. And they called, my agent called me on a Friday night and he said, uh, there's this uh, new role, and it's towards the end of the season, and it's just one quick scene. Right. But they want you in Chicago on Monday to shoot this piece, and then when this when they when they start shooting again for the next season, it will recur from time to time. And I'm in the middle of doing a play with no understudies right. or anything, and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. so um, I actually got on a plane after the matinee from Albany the Sunday night, flew to Chicago, mm-hmm. shot. Monday flew back Tuesday morning and was back on stage Tuesday night without missing a performance. But, um, but it's a small role of a police chief that's sort of a rival to the uh, to the uh, lead character played by Eamon Walker, I think his name is, nicest guy on the planet. Mm-hmm. Just a scene between the two of us where we sort of battled over some things that had happened. And um, you know, the nice thing about working for Dick Wolf is that he produces so much. Sure including, in this case, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, which amazingly shoot simultaneously in these huge studios in Chicago. Mm. And so this character could could recur on any of those. Right. Uh, because he could, you know, it, that's the way those shows work. Yeah. So I think it was them sort of testing me out a little bit to see how they felt about me. The character's kind of a... I'm trying to figure out a way to say it, that I can say it on the radio. He's kind of a baddish guy (laughs) kind of a nice guy but kind of not at the same time so i like the character and and we'll see how it goes but but in terms of how it will fit into whatever theater schedule i have um i won't know until i get to it so um once this role is up what's next i mean do you um there's a a web series called venice the series that's Mm -hmm. in its fifth season now that i've shot on for quite a while so i fly out to la and shoot that uh, over a 10-day period it's just a it's it's a six episode kind of thing, right. and, or I think they do eleven or twelve episodes now. But um, started a few years ago by Crystal Chappelle, who was one of my co stars on Guiding Light. She played mm-hmm. Olivia, mm-hmm. one of Josh's many wives, <laughs> and uh, and it's done very well. It's in you know it's on the web, two hundred and twenty countries around the world. Wow. Uh, you know, and she's done quite well with it. So we're shooting the fifth and final season. Many of the actors and even directors that have come here. I mean, it it just seems that. You know, when when Guiding Light went off the air, I mean, we were still toying with this thing called the Internet. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was there. We knew what it could do. And, you know, it was sort of this big, vast hole out there that people thought they knew. And now here we are. You know, this the Internet pretty much has taken over everything that we do. If we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I would say, Robert, when you work in television, it's a screen that's like this. And then when you work in a movie, it's a screen that's like that. Mm -hmm. And now... There's this whole other dimension of the internet. I mean, do you see oh, from, and phones and iPads yeah, and I people mean, watch on all kinds of platforms? Yeah, you could, exactly. Yeah. So, do you see this as the new way of 
I don't want to say entertainment, but the new way of, I mean, even movies. Movies are released in theaters on Friday, and you can download it, yep. you know, th- two days later. So well, is this... Maybe not legally, but yes, you could. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never well, done no, anything the, like that. I, I would answer it this way. Yeah. You know, I'm going to answer it more from the sag after sure. perspective mm-hmm. because it has created a whole slew of issues for us to try to stay ahead of the curve, and it's very difficult. Yeah. You know, if for instance, if you think about... Um, when I do a show like Chicago Fire on a network, I, I'm paid a fee for the day, and then I get paid another fee for the first time they replay it. And then f- for years, I get a pay, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. In yeah. fact, I still get checks from Hunter, which I did whenever Hunter was on in 19... I don't even know what year that was. Right. I can't even think of it. But um, I, And they're like for 12 cents now or right. something like that, you know, but... Um, but um, if, if you then take that format and you think about House of Cards, mm-hmm. how does that format work uh, when the entire series is released in the blink of an eye yeah. on Netflix and is available 24-7 to anybody who wants to watch it? And, and their income isn't even based on who's watching that show. For their their income for that show isn't based on who's watching that show. It's based on their subscription. So we had to reframe an entire kind of a contract to deal with that kind of to 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 be similar. So we would at least have a similar kind of thing to what we have with uh, one of the networks. Right. Right. So it it that's the kind of thing. And then you throw in again, as I said, you've got people watching on their phones, on their iPads, on this and that and the other thing, and. And so it's a constantly changing landscape. And, um, you know, as much as we love what we do, actors, we, we, we do have to try to make some kind of a reasonable living at what mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. And uh, I think people tend to think about the movie stars that are making $15 million a year mm-hmm. for a movie. For a movie, That's yeah. not, you know, our, our union, which has uh, 160,000 members, including mm-hmm. radio personalities, um, there's a known statistic that is true that about 95% of our members do not make uh, more than, say, $5,000 a year mm. what they do. Mm. So you've got this very tight window of, of uh, most of us are just sort of journeyman actors. You know, the actors that you see doing guest spots on shows or seeing, you know, sure, when you're, when you've got a, you know, a main role on a series that's running for a while, you're going to make some really good money. But most of the actors out there are just trying to sort of make enough to sort of raise their families like everybody else, yeah. you know, yeah. a couple of kids and a car and a garage and, you mm-hmm. know, a TV. And, you know, that's what we do. I think a lot of people think that we just, well, we're so lucky to do what we do that, you know, how we're paid doesn't matter, but it matters. Gratifying to hear not only being a uh, SAG after a member, but it's gratifying to know that people like yourself at that level are concerned about where this industry generally is going yeah. in the future. And you can't help but wonder about those actors back in the 60s who got paid for the initial run of the show and then got squat nothing when yeah. they went into rerun yeah, they got DVD nothing. release or you know, yeah. VHS release. So uh, it's encouraging to know that uh, uh, guys and gals just like you are on the front line uh, working for guys and gals like us on, you know. Well, I am so. taking a break. I did. Uh, well, we're, we're make sure <laughs> I told them in back. October it was going to be at least a two-year break and maybe four and maybe lifetime because nah, 14 years it. of union work kind of I guess wears you down after a while. <laughs> so union work or Don Quixote, which is worse here, right? <laughs> well, I can handle both. But Robert, I want to thank you for your time. Thank uh, you. I appreciate you coming in. Good job. 
You've been listening to Studio 89.7, a monthly program that focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. Please tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Studio 89.7, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.